Welcome to the very first episode of Short Story Today. My name is John DeSavino, and I will be your host and guide on this journey into the extraordinary world of the short story. In this podcast, we'll explore a literary form that has proven to be popular among serious readers, but has never quite received the love it fully deserves, always residing in the shadow of its larger and more influential sibling, the novel. Of course, it's not unheard of for a collection of short stories to make it onto the bestsellers list, but that occurs only once in a blue moon. Chances are, if you've chosen this podcast from among the thousands that are out there, you then are the choir, so to speak. I won't have to convince you of the magical powers of the short story. But if you're one of the curious who, for whatever reason, hasn't decided the short story is a form worth considering, it's my hope here that I can help to spread the love. Whichever genre is your pleasure, science fiction, mysteries, westerns, fantasy, historical fiction, horror, or ghost stories, there's a whole world that awaits you. The playful nature of the podcast's logo should be your first clue as to what the tone of this project will be. It was designed to suggest that something fun would be found within. I'm going to make a promise to you right now that the approach I'm going to take here will not be stuffy, dry, and academic. The object, first and foremost, is for you to be entertained. And if you should learn something along the way, then great. Learning while having fun. What could be better? I'll tell you a little about myself, mainly so you'll have a context for the genesis of this podcast. I'm a 67-year-old actor and stage director. I'm also a producer and narrator of audiobooks. In anticipation of retiring from my day job, I had been searching for an enterprise that would combine my love of literature with my skills as a performer and director. And recording audiobooks, especially fiction, does check those boxes to a point. But something was missing, and as much as I enjoy the work, I was feeling frustrated by it. It didn't take long for me to figure out what the problem was. I'm not the one who gets to decide what to read. I'm limited by having to read the books I'm hired to read, which are not necessarily the books I want to read. And while I've had the good fortune of being chosen to narrate books by writers with skills and talent, when you narrate a book, it's always someone else's dream that you're helping to fulfill. It was while reading a short story one day that I had this epiphany. I could do everything I wanted to do on a podcast. I think it's important to mention at the outset that I'm facing questions pertaining to copyright-protected material until I can gain a fuller understanding of which stories are fair game and which are off-limits. For now, I will err on the side of caution and read only stories which have entered the public domain. I'm going to talk more later on this subject, but for now I'll explain it simply as a work that is no longer protected by copyright, a work without any restrictions. It may be used and adapted in any way the public sees fit, without permission from the publisher or the author, who is usually long dead by that point. I want to assure listeners that it doesn't mean I'll be relegated to reading musty, dusty, old-fashioned fiction that is dated and out of touch with today's readers. The thing to remember about great literature, the thing that makes it ageless and timeless, is the author's gift for getting to the heart of the human condition. And while circumstances may have changed, the problems and the joys and all the other conditions of life that we all go through have changed surprisingly little through the ages. And we are still moved by these works, decades and even centuries after they were written. When you think short story, which writers come to mind? There are many champions. 
contemporary writers like Alice Munro, George Saunders, Tobias Wolfe, Elizabeth McCracken, and Alan Gerganus, just to name a few. An amazing collection of dystopian-themed stories with the title Friday Black came out in 2018 and made it onto the New York Times bestsellers list. I wanted to mention it because it's by a local guy, a young writer named Nana Kwame Ajebrenya, who is clearly a talent to watch closely in the years ahead. It's important when writers like Nana come along and continue the form in ways that will help it maintain its popularity. Now, Edgar Allan Poe would likely be the writer that would come to mind for many Americans, thanks to all the other forms his works have taken in the popular culture. Myriad film and TV adaptations of his stories have been produced over the decades, and many during their school days will likely have encountered Herman Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener and Mark Twain's Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, both of which have also seen numerous film and TV adaptations. So that may be the way many have been introduced to the short story, in one of its other guises, but it's still one way to perpetuate the literature, and that's a good thing. I could go all college professor on you right about now and get into the origins of what is referred to as the modern short story and how that differs from contemporary fiction, etc., but I'll spare you. As I said earlier, I want to try to keep things light. So enough talking. It's time to get on with the real star of the show, the short story. The story you're about to hear is the story that created the spark of the idea for this podcast. It's called The Young Girl by Catherine Mansfield and it has become one of my favorites. She was born and raised in New Zealand and lived most of her adult life in London, France, and finally Switzerland. She's not a household name, obviously, but she deserves to be. If you've read anything of hers, you'll know what a remarkable writer she was, but I'll talk more about her after the story. So here it is. The Young Girl by Catherine Mansfield In her blue dress, with her cheeks lightly flushed, her blue, blue eyes, and her gold curls pinned up as though for the first time, pinned up to be out of the way for her flight, Mrs. Raddock's daughter might have just dropped from this radiant heaven. Mrs. Raddock's timid, faintly astonished, but deeply admiring glance looked as if she believed it, too. But the daughter didn't appear any too pleased, why should she, to have alighted on the steps of the casino? Indeed, she was bored, bored as though heaven had been full of casinos with snuffy old saints for croupiers and crowns to play with. "'You don't mind taking Henny?' said Mrs. Raddock. "'Sure you don't. There's the car, and you'll have tea, and we'll be back here on this step, right here in an hour. You see, I want her to go in. She's not been before, and it's worth seeing. I feel it wouldn't be fair to her.' "'Oh, shut up, mother,' said she wearily. Come along, don't talk so much, and your bag's open. You'll be losing all your money again. I'm sorry, darling, said Mrs. Raddock. Oh, do come in. I want to make money, said the impatient voice. It's all jolly well for you, but I'm broke. Here, take fifty francs, darling. Take a hundred. I saw Mrs. Raddock pressing notes into her hand as they passed through the swing doors. Henny and I stood on the steps a minute, watching the people. He had a very broad, delighted smile. I say, he cried, there's an English bulldog. Are they allowed to take dogs in there? No, they're not. He's a ripping chap, isn't he? I wish I had one. They're such fun. They frighten people so, and they're never fierce with their 
the people they belong to. Suddenly he squeezed my arm. I say, do look at that old woman. Who is she? Why does she look like that? Is she a gambler? The ancient, withered creature, wearing a green satin dress, a black velvet cloak, and a white hat with purple feathers, jerked slowly, slowly up the steps, as though she were being drawn up on wires. She stared in front of her. She was laughing and nodding and cackling to herself, her claws clutched round what looked like a dirty boot-bag. But just at that moment there was Mrs. Raddick again, with her and another lady hovering in the background. Mrs. Raddick rushed at me. She was brightly flushed, gay, a different creature. She was like a woman who was saying goodbye to her friends on the station platform, with not a minute to spare before the train starts. Oh, you're here still. Isn't that lucky? You've not gone. Isn't that fine? I've had the most dreadful time with her. And she waved to her daughter, who stood absolutely still, disdainful, looking down, twiddling her foot on the step, miles away. They won't let her in. I swore she was twenty-one, but they won't believe me. I showed the man my purse. I didn't dare to do more. But it was no use. He simply scoffed. And now I've just met Mrs. McEwen from New York, and she just won thirteen thousand in the Salprivé, and she wants me to go back with her while the luck lasts. Of course I can't leave her. But if you'd— At that she looked up. She simply withered her mother. Why can't you leave me? she said furiously. What utter rot! How dare you make a scene like this? This is the last time I'll come out with you. You really are too awful for words. She looked her mother up and down. Calm yourself, she said superbly. Mrs. Raddick was desperate, just desperate. She was wild to go back with Mrs. McEwen, but at the same time I seized my courage. Would you—do you care to come to tea with us? Yes, yes, she'll be delighted. That's just what I wanted, isn't it, darling? Mrs. McEwen! I'll be back here in an hour, or less. I'll— Mrs. R. dashed up the steps. I saw her bag was open again. So we three were left. But really it wasn't my fault. Henny looked crushed to the earth, too. When the car was there she wrapped her dark coat round her, to escape contamination. Even her little feet looked as though they scorned to carry her down the steps to us. I am so awfully sorry. I murmured as the car started. Oh, I don't mind, said she. I don't want to look twenty-one. Who would, if they were seventeen? It's, and she gave a faint shudder, the stupidity I loathe, and being stared at by old fat men. Beasts! Henny gave her a quick look, and then peered out of the window. We drew up before an immense palace of pink and white marble with orange trees outside the doors in gold and black tubs. Would you care to go in? I suggested. She hesitated, glanced, bit her lip, and resigned herself. Oh, well, there seems nowhere else, said she. Get out, Henny. I went first, to find the table, of course. She followed. But the worst of it was having her little brother, who was only twelve with us, that was the last final straw, having that child trailing at her heels. There was one table, it had pink carnations and pink plates with little blue tea-napkins for sales. Shall we sit here? She put her hand wearily on the back of a white wicker chair. We may as well, why not, said she. 
Henny squeezed past her and wriggled onto a stool at the end. He felt awfully out of it. She didn't even take her gloves off. She lowered her eyes and drummed on the table. When a faint violin sounded, she winced and bit her lip again. Silence. The waitress appeared. I hardly dared to ask her. Tea? Coffee? China tea? Or, or iced tea with lemon? Really, she didn't mind. It was all the same to her. She didn't really want anything. Henny whispered, Chocolate! But just as the waitress turned away, she cried out carelessly, Oh, you may as well bring me a chocolate, too. While we waited, she took out a little gold powder box with a mirror in the lid, shook the poor little puff as though she loathed it, and dabbed her lovely nose. Henny, she said, take those flowers away. She pointed with her puff to the carnations, and I heard her murmur, I can't bear flowers on a table. They had evidently been giving her intense pain, for she positively closed her eyes as I moved them away. The waitress came back with the chocolate and the tea. She put the big, frothing cups before them and pushed across my clear glass. Henny buried his nose, emerged with, for one dreadful moment, a little trembling blob of cream on the tip, but he hastily wiped it off like a little gentleman. I wondered if I should dare draw her attention to her cup. She didn't notice it, didn't see it, until suddenly, quite by chance, she took a sip. I watched anxiously. She faintly shuddered. Dreadfully sweet, said she. A tiny boy with a head like a raisin and a chocolate body came round with a tray of pastries, row upon row of little freaks, little inspirations, little melting dreams. He offered them to her. Oh, I'm not at all hungry. Take them away. He offered them to Henny. Henny gave me a swift look. It must have been satisfactory, for he took a chocolate cream, a coffee éclair, a meringue stuffed with chestnut, and a tiny horn filled with fresh strawberries. She could hardly bear to watch him. But just as the boy swerved away, she held up her plate. Oh, well, give me one, said she. The silver tongs dropped one, two, three, and a cherry tartlet. I don't know why you're giving me all these, she said, and nearly smiled. I shan't eat them. I couldn't. I felt much more comfortable. I sipped my tea, leaned back, and even asked if I might smoke. At that she paused, the fork in her hand, opened her eyes, and really did smile. Of course, said she. I always expect people to. But at that moment a tragedy happened to Henny. He speared his pastry horn too hard, and it flew in two, and one half spilled on the table. Ghastly affair! He turned crimson, even his ears flared, and one ashamed hand crept across the table to take what was left of the body away. You utter little beast, said she. Good heavens! I had to fly to the rescue. I cried hastily, Will you be abroad long? But she had already forgotten Henny. I was forgotten, too. She was trying to remember something. She was miles away. I don't know, she said slowly from that far place. I suppose you prefer it to London. It's more, more... When I didn't go on, she came back and looked at me, very puzzled. More? 
enfin, gayer, I cried, waving my cigarette. But that took a whole cake to consider. Even then, oh, well, that depends, was all she could safely say. Henny had finished. He was still very warm. I seized the butterfly list off the table. I say, what about an ice, Henny? What about tangerine and ginger? No, something cooler. What about a fresh pineapple cream? Henny strongly approved. The waitress had her eye on us. The order was taken when she looked up from her crumbs. Did you say tangerine and ginger? I like ginger. You can bring me one. And then quickly, I wish that orchestra wouldn't play things from the year one. We were dancing to that all last Christmas. It's too sickening. But it was a charming air. Now that I noticed it, it warmed me. I think this is rather a nice place, don't you, Henny? I said. Henny said, Ripping! He meant to say it very low, but it came out very high in a kind of squeak. Nice? This place nice? For the first time she stared about her, trying to see what there was. She blinked. Her lovely eyes wandered. A very good-looking elderly man stared back at her through a monocle on a black ribbon. But him she simply couldn't see. There was a hole in the air where he was. She looked through and through him. Finally, the little flat spoons lay still on the glass plates. Henny looked rather exhausted, but she pulled on her white gloves again. She had some trouble with her diamond wristwatch. It got in her way. She tugged at it, tried to break the stupid little thing. It wouldn't break. Finally, she had to drag her glove over. I saw, after that, she couldn't stand this place a moment longer, and indeed she jumped up and turned away while I went through the vulgar act of paying for the tea. And then we were outside again. It had grown dusky. The sky was sprinkled with small stars. The big lamps glowed. While we waited for the car to come up, she stood on the step just as before, twiddling her foot, looking down. Henny bounded forward to open the door, and she got in and sank back with, Oh, such a sigh. <sighs> Tell him, she gasped, to drive as fast as he can. Henny grinned at his friend, the chauffeur. Allez vite, said he. Then he composed himself and sat on the small seat facing us. The gold powder box came out again. Again the poor little puff was shaken. Again there was that swift, deadly secret glance between her and the mirror. We tore through the black and gold town like a pair of scissors tearing through brocade. Henny had great difficulty not to look as though he were hanging on to something. And when we reached the casino, of course Mrs. Raddick wasn't there. There wasn't a sign of her on the steps, not a sign. Will you stay in the car while I go and look? But no, she wouldn't do that. Good heavens, no. Henny could stay. She couldn't bear sitting in a car. She'd wait on the steps. But I scarcely like to leave you, I murmured. I'd very much rather not leave you here. At that she threw back her coat. She turned and faced me. Her lips parted. Good heavens, why? I... I don't mind it a bit. I... I like waiting. And suddenly her cheeks crimsoned. Her eyes grew dark. For a moment I thought she was going to cry. Let me, please? She stammered in a warm, eager voice. I like it. I love waiting. Really, really I do. I'm always waiting, in all kinds of places. Her dark coat fell open, and her white throat 
all her soft young body in the blue dress, was like a flower that is just emerging from its dark bud. That story gets me every time. It's the hopeless romantic in me, I suppose. But the writing... I chose this story to start the podcast because of Mansfield's complete mastery of the form, and according to the back cover of the paperback from which I just read, she is regarded as a writer who helped create the modern short story. This story is to me a perfect example of just how powerful the form can be. In the short span of six pages, Mansfield creates a vivid and colorful world inhabited by surprisingly complex characters. I couldn't help noticing her carefully placed use of color in describing things. In an almost painterly fashion, she conjures up the garish garments worn by the old crone on the casino steps, the facade of the tea room, and the place settings on the table inside. She is able to make us see the world the characters move through in detail with a mere handful of words. On the surface, the story seems deceptively simple. A sweet and perhaps even sentimental tale about some highly privileged upper-class folks who are all out for a good time. Pretty lightweight stuff, right? But once the characters begin to speak, the ways in which they relate to one another open a window onto their inner lives. And that's where we get hooked. Because on the inside, these people are very much like us. The emotions we all share related to love and longing are pretty much the same and we become invested right away in the question of what is to become of them. I'm going to presume that if you're listening to this podcast, you already have some knowledge of the forms used in writing fiction. An aspect of the writing that we'll discuss in this podcast is the point of view in which the story has been written, typically first person versus third person, also referred to as omniscient. Stories written in the first person tend to work more successfully than novels. It's much harder to sustain that point of view over the course of an entire novel. Mansfield, in using the first person here, draws us into the story quickly and to great effect. It's a testament to her skill that, in such short order, we are made to feel the emotions the narrator is experiencing as an outsider, a point of view that we can instantly relate to. And so these other characters, as we observe them through the eyes of the protagonist, are, in a way, curiosities, all except for the young girl who becomes an object of desire, one that will likely remain forever out of our nameless narrator's reach. You may have noticed that he and the young girl are never referred to by name. I would argue that that was a deliberate choice made by Mansfield to place the two characters in a separate realm. It allows her to suspend them above the other characters in a world of their own, heightening the emotional mystery that fills the air between them. I think that's a good place to leave it for today. If you'd like more information about Catherine Mansfield and how books and other art forms become public domain, there are links that can be found on my website page, www.johndisavino.com. That's J-O-N-D-I-S-A-V-I-N-O.com. One of my goals for this podcast is to have it become a forum where I can help get the word out about new books, new writers, and do whatever I can to support the greater writing community. The success of that will depend on what kind of reaction listeners like you have to this podcast, so I'll just put that out there now. If you like what you hear today and want to support this enterprise in a meaningful way, please share the podcast with your friends and family. Word of mouth has always been the most effective form of advertising. Until next time, I'll leave you with a quote from another brilliant author, Neil Gaiman. A short story is the ultimate close-up magic trick.
a couple of thousand words to take you around the universe or break your heart.